What makes a person effective in life? Many people would probably say natural ability, talent, aptitude, or, or maybe intuition, which, you know, leads you to know how to do something well or how to just figure out how to do something. Others may say beyond skill, it would be training, uh, whether through education that you receive that training or an on-the-job apprenticeship. Perhaps it's just through experience, simply, you know, doing a certain task uh, over and over repetitively. Still others would say a willingness to learn, to never be completely satisfied, a, per, a passion and a hunger for growth, an openness to hear what others think or how they have been able to become effective. Others would still say hard work is the key, a willingness to persevere. When everybody else is going to quit, these person, people that are effective continue going and they break through somewhere before others would even get to that point. They practice, practice, practice. The Milwaukee Bucks happen to be an example of this. It's in, a, in pro sports to have a team with a number of players who have actually stayed together for eight years, some of them taking less money than they could have gotten other places, especially in bigger markets, but they had the goal of winning an NBA title. And their star, Giannis, and I can't hardly say his uh, last name, Antetokounmpo, I can't even hardly say his last name, and uh, he was born in Greece, and he's from Greece, and he's affectionately called the Greek freak. And he's a very humble man, a family-oriented team player who deflects praise and celebrates his teammates. And refreshing, how refreshing to actually see a superstar in sports who is not full of himself and who talks about others and actually, as a pro player, expresses his love for his teammates and his coach who, by the way, gave his players the greatest compliment of all uh, after they won the NBA title last week. Uh, he said, they are champions every single day in how hard they work and how they show up every day for practice, how they push each other to get better and how committed they are to the team. He said they were champions before they ever became NBA champions. Well, you know, if the Bible was consulted regarding this question, what makes a person effective in life? The Scriptures would give a one-word answer. God. And specifically here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through chapter 3, verse 6, when the subject is ministry, the answer is very loud and clear. God. God ensures the effectiveness of ministry. In verse 6, it says of chapter 3, he has made us competent as ministers of the new covenant. And it's not just simply describing pastors here when it says ministers. That's the Greek word diakonos, which means a servant of others. When Kurt Putin got up here this morning and gave those three announcements, he was asking people, Will you consider serving others in this way? Will you be a diakonos? 
Will you be a minister? That's what it's saying. And verse 14 of chapter 2 said, But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. He uses us as diakonos, as ministers to spread the aroma of Jesus everywhere. See, we are the original super spreaders of the good news of Jesus, who is the one who assures that we can effectively do this. That's God. God does that because in Christ, we're part of God's triumphal procession. Verses 12 and 13 now. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Here the Apostle Paul is giving details of what he had done during his third and final missionary journey. In leaving Ephesus, he traveled to Troas, and then he went on to Macedonia. And he's not simply reporting details of his journey. Rather, it is to share the burden that he has on his heart for the church at Corinth. Paul had returned to Ephesus following his painful visit to the Corinthian church. From there, he had written a letter, a severe letter, to the church at Corinth, which he had, and it's believed, was delivered by Titus. And hearing no report back from the church there when he was in Ephesus about his letter and how it was received, he moved on to Troas to preach the good news of Christ, the gospel. And he found an incredible open door there to do it, and it was going very well. But the beginning of verse 13 again says, I still had no peace of mind. Why? Because he had no news from Corinth of how they had received this painful letter, this severe letter that he had sent to them. And it is true. It's really true. It's hard to concentrate. It's hard to give oneself to the task at hand. It's hard to study or to work when something is weighing heavy on our hearts. Have you had experiences like this? Some tragedy has occurred. Uh, somebody you knew or someone close or even maybe a family member. Maybe there was a bad diagnosis or a major disappointment or some big uh, financial setback. And then it becomes hard in those moments to buckle down. It becomes very difficult to concentrate and get things done. Well, Paul says the door was wide open at Troas to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. But my heart was too burdened for you at Corinth to ever take advantage of the open door. So I moved on to Macedonia to try and catch up with Titus there and receive word regarding you. Now, the anguish of these circumstances made it look like the church's greatest missionary, Paul, was going to be grounded. No more flights for him. He's grounded. But look at verses 14 through 17. But we'll go 14 to 16 first. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Citizens in the Greco-Roman world were very familiar 
with triumphant Roman military processions. Caesar would often be leading them the way, followed by generals and legions, the Roman soldiers. Further back in the procession would be the conquered royal family, the defeated nation, with many POWs, enemy soldiers, servants, and the spoils of war, which were riches, wealth, livestock, etc. These victory parades were often enhanced by the use of incense that would waft through the air and make this aroma that was to the Romans an aroma of victory. To the Roman Empire, we're, you know, Roman victor, victora, you know, victorious. And citizens of Romans' towns that they would parade through would experience the same thing. But to the people in conquered lands, when they paraded through, or the vanquished peoples in these occupied lands and in the procession itself, it was to them the smell of death. Same incense. To one, it's victory. To the other, it's the smell of death. Now, many of us have learned about the importance of smell and taste in the past 16 months during the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the questions uh, that is used to diagnose if a person may or may not have had uh, COVID is, did you lose your sense of smell or did you lose your sense of taste? Because for some people, that's all, that, that's all they know. One of my nieces, the only thing she knew that she had COVID is she lost her, her sense of taste. That's it. And I know some people who a year later after having COVID still can't really taste food. Now, outside of the pandemic... We tend to use our sen- we tend to take, excuse me, our sense of smell for granted. But it's vital for our survival. It can alert us to danger, like a gas leak, a certain gas leaks you can smell, uh, smoke that might be coming from something that's on fire, or, you know, uh, about 10 years ago, my wife woke up on a Saturday night and smelled smoke, and our furnace was on fire. And she woke me up, and we went down and shut the power off and shut the gas off and got the fire out all those kinds of things, deciding should we call the fire department. It was the sense of smell that alerted her before any smoke alarms even went off. Uh, Our sense of smell also can tell if there's rotten food that we probably shouldn't consume that could make us very sick. The sense of smell is tied to the olfactory nerve in our brain, which is part of our limbic system. And it plays an important role in controlling our mood, our memory, our behavior, and our emotions. All of our senses, uh, scent, in, in, in considering all of them, scent is the one that is the most likely to be tied to memory. Research has shown that people can remember a scent with 65% accuracy one year later. You saw a little gal up here, you know, remembering these smells, like that's, that's how important it is. While our visual memory drops to 50% after only two months. People can't always remember what they've seen, but they can remember what they've smelled. Uh, and after only a couple months, that's what happens with our visual. Now, for ex- the, the, uh, I- the other thing I want you to know is studies have also indicated that certain scents can influence our perception of time. For example, the smell of coffee reduces our perception of time, while the smell of baby powder lengthens it. Pleasurable fragrances can create a longer dwelling time, 
which is historically why realtors have often had clients bake cookies in the house that they were trying to sell right before the showing because potential buyers will linger longer because there's the fresh smell of baked cookies there in the house. They can almost imagine owning it and baking cookies there themselves. Now, I'm certain that some of our favorite childhood memories or family members relate to the sense of smell. For me, fresh baked bread is one of them because my grandma Nelson baked bread every single day. I have no childhood memories of ever being at her house and not having fresh bread baked every single day. Five plus decades later, I can still smell that fresh bread that she would bake every single day. Uh, how, how about the scent of a fresh-cut Christmas tree? Does that bring memories back? Or how about a fresh-baked apple pie or a crisp fall morning? Once you've experienced that, filled your lungs with that and smelled, it's like, wow, it's incredible. Here the Apostle Paul tells us that we're part of the victory procession of God. Ephesians 4, 7 and 8 reads, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. See, people have been gifted to do this diakonos, to do this ministry and to serve God and the gospel of Jesus Christ as we share it and as we minister and as we love and help people and, you know, represent Jesus, the aroma of Jesus to people, and it spreads around. It's, it, it's a pleasing aroma to God, to those who are saved, and to those who are being saved. But to the people who reject the gospel... It is the smell of death. I can remember many years ago officiating at a wedding. And as a Christian minister, I can only officiate at a wedding between a man and a woman. That's the teaching of the Bible. And I also can only officiate at a wedding between two believers, a man and a woman who are believers, or a man and a woman who are unbelievers. But I can't biblically officiate at a wedding if one is known to be a believer and one is known to be an unbeliever. Well, I was because they would be unequally yoked and I would be part of that yoking process. And for non-believers, when they ask me to do a wedding for them, I just let them know very clearly that there's going to be Christian elements to this, this uh, service that I'm going to do. If you're okay with that, I'm happy to do your wedding. Well, this particular wedding I was doing years ago for a non-believing couple in the middle of the homily, the wedding message, I was sharing with them if they would give their life to Christ, the impact that Jesus could have in their life and the difference that it would make in their marriage moving forward. And at that very point, the maid of honor had heard enough. And in the middle of the, the, the wedding message, Loud enough for everyone to hear, she blurted out. I looked right at her, the, the, the bride, and she said, I told you not to have him do your wedding. That's an interruption. To her, the gospel of Jesus Christ was the smell of death. To the believer, it is life to life. But to the perishing, it's death to death. Now, look at the end of verse 16 there. And who is equal to such a task? 
to be in Christ's triumphal procession, to be one of his diakonoses, to be one of God's ministers, to be one who's spreading the good news of Jesus and the aroma of Jesus everywhere. Who is up to that task? Who possibly has what it takes to even do that day in, day out? Look at verse 17. Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. We're not the people who do this for personal gain. We're not the ones who sell the word of God for profit. We're not the ones who try to please people by telling them what they want to hear, even if it means twisting or watering down the word of God. No, not us. On the contrary, we speak with sincerity as those who who are sent from God. And the Apostle Paul here refused to tamper with the Word of God to remove its offense, like so many people do who peddle the Word of God for personal gain. It's okay to downplay the Word of God if you're trying to get something personally out of it. That's how people view it. Paul says, no way, no way, that's not our mission. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, another letter he wrote to the Corinthians, he said that the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And some Bible scholars have gone as far as saying that there will be no salvation in this world until there is again a cross within the church. See, meaning the message of the cross, the offense of the cross, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin is death. You're dying. You're, you're sentenced to eternal separation from God for all eternity apart from Christ. That's offensive to people. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Christ, we're part of God's triumphal procession, and God is the one who ensures the effectiveness of this ministry. Now, just this week, a man shared with me this very truth that God had provided for him and his family over all the years during his lifetime, and that allowed him to do the ministry that he was was doing. That allowed him to be a generous person who could bless others. And God had enabled this man to be effective in ministry and his wife and his family as well uh, in this ministry of generosity, all because God had provided for them. God had met their needs. Now, in chapter 3, 1 through 6, we learn this very lesson, that our competence for ministry comes from God. Look at verses 1 through 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets uh, of human hearts. You know, it's not that the Apostle Paul was opposed to letters of commendation, because he gave them. He gave many of them on a number of occasions. He provided them to churches like at Rome, at Corinth, at Philippi. An example would be Romans chapter 16, verse 1, where he said, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a deacon, again, now there it used the word diakonos, but it's minister, deacon, minister of the church at Senecre. And the Corinthian church did not need to give Paul 
a letter of recommendation or any of his fellow missionaries, nor did he have to produce one for them. No matter what criticisms were coming his way, no matter what people were saying about him, uh, he didn't need one at the church at Corinth. In verse 1, Paul's questions here is, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need these letters of recommendation to you or from you? And in the original language, there's a particle may that's on the front end of all of this. It means to the reader's mind, there's an emphatic no answer. Like a rhetorical question, it answers itself. But this is emphatic. No, I'm not, we don't need to commend ourselves to you. Do, we don't need any letters of, of commendation or recommendation. And verse 2, he says, you are our letter. You're all the evidence that we need of our apostolic ministry. Your changed lives constitute a living letter that authenticates mine, Silas's, Timothy's, and Titus's ministry. And your letter here in verse 3, uh, the scribal work that was done in your life was not done with ink. You know, I learned something very fascinating this week about scribes in our modern world. Because one of my nieces has just graduated uh, with a master's degree from UW-Stevens Point, And she was near the top of her class of 70-plus graduates in exercise science and athletic training. And she just took a job in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, where she will work in the afternoon for a local school district with uh, high school and middle school athletes. And then in the mornings, she's going to be working for an orthopedic physician in a clinic in Rhinelander. And one of her duties will be to be a scribe for the orthopedic physician. See, doctors have to write so many notes nowadays. In fact, many of my doctor friends want to get out of being a doctor simply because they're constantly doing paperwork. They have to do it for insurance purposes, for government liability, you know, accountability and other liability requirements and for the hospital and all this kind of stuff they have to do. They feel like they're spending their life writing notes. Uh, They're overwhelmed with the task. Well, they've started to hire and they call them scribes, you know, who will write up their notes, which the doctor will then verify and sign off on. Well, Paul is saying, you are a letter from Christ. Jesus is the author of this church. And it's not written with ink, but it's written with the Spirit of the living God. Jeremiah the prophet talked about this time in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. He prophesied this very coming day when letters would be written like this. He said, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Ezekiel also prophesied this way. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. See, Paul and his colleagues were privileged to be agents by whom living letters from the exalted Christ were written. Verses 4 and 5. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. And remember the question at the end of verse 16 in chapter 2? Who is equal to such a task? Paul says, God is. God is the one who makes his servants competent to carry out the tasks that he assigns to them. The confidence that Paul here describes isn't self-confidence. 
Rather, it's competence that comes from God. You know, in Exodus chapters 3 and 4, God appears to Moses at Mount Horeb in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament just years before Jesus. when, When Moses was saying he couldn't do what God was asking him, it says in the Septuagint there that Moses said, I am not competent for this task. So what does God do in response? He reveals himself to Moses as El Shaddai, as the God who is all sufficient. See, it does not need to be mentioned here, or excuse me, it does need to be mentioned here, that some in the faith community see both confidence and competence as arrogance. Some even go as far as denying any faith claim made with certainty or any degree of certainty as being arrogant, and then taking up an almost agnostic tone by saying, well, no one can really know for certain. The Apostle Paul does not stand on his own authority, but rather boldly proclaims that his confidence comes from God himself. Verse 6, he has made us competent as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Do you realize that it's hopeless to look to secular leadership, to look to politicians and government authorities to get us out of the mess that we are in as a culture? And if the church doesn't share the good news of Jesus with the world, then there's no hope for our country. And for that matter, there's really no hope for any of the nations on the planet. And who is sufficient for this task? What school can you graduate from that will give you, will give me the ability to do that? What course can you take that will instruct us and you how to do this? What human leader can you follow that will teach you how to do this? The answer is none. Only God. God is the one who ensures effectiveness for ministry. Let's pray. God, today as we have just uh, looked at what some Bible scholars call the, one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to understand, God, I believe we've, we've recognized today by your Spirit, through your Word, uh, what your message is to us that you are the one, God, who can make us competent. You are the one who can make us effective in doing your work. You give us the gifts. You give us the ability. You can give us the passions. All of that, God, you just ask us to yield to you. You ask us to be faithful to you and to be obedient. And so, Lord, I pray to that end that we will recognize how you've called each one of us to be diakonos, to be servants of you, minister to you, whatever stage or age we find ourselves in, there's always a place uh, for us to serve. There's always a place for us to minister. And we thank you for Paul and Silas and Titus and Timothy and others who've gone before us who have modeled this so well for us. And God, I pray that we would just continue in that triumphal procession of Christ, spreading the beautiful aroma of Jesus to this world and leaving the results of all of that to you. And we pray to this end in Jesus' name. Amen.